You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads. I'm your host, Arnie Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Milton Lawson. Milton, could you please introduce yourself? Hi there, Milton Lawson here, a comic book writer based out of Houston, Texas, and I'm an ex-Blogging Head alumnus where I edited videos and was a co-worker of REA's. And apparently I'm here substituting for the uh, mighty Daniel Kaufman today. <laughs> right, in a way, yes. Okay, so the backstory of this episode is there's a topic that I've long wanted to talk about on Culturally Determined, and um, and it was so, it's so sort of semi-obscure, and I wonder if anyone else in the world really cares about it, so I've held off on doing it, but my, my time on the Bloggies platform is coming to a close. I'm going to be taking the show independent uh, pretty soon. And so I uh, wanted to get this in. And then uh, Dan and I um, had a bet going in about whether uh, Trump would win or lose in 2020. And uh, and the, the uh, <laughs> whoever won the bet got to pick a, a topic for the guest to come on and talk about. And so, you know, Trump lost. I won the bet. I picked Transformers the movie. Dan, uh, for various reasons, um, some family uh, reasons, didn't have the time to watch uh, the very silly Transformers the movie, animated movie 1986. Um, and so he bowed so out. I'm taking on his reward slash punishment. <laughs> yes, he bowed out. And so I reached out to you um, as someone who is in the comic book world, knows a lot about, you know, nerdy sci-fi uh crap from the you know the 70s 80s and 90s and um and you very kindly uh agreed to watch transformers the movie and come on and talk about it so thank you for doing so and and but there's also some things that are particular to your interests uh related to the movie and i guess that's a little teaser that maybe we'll talk about which is uh that orson wells uh somewhat <laughs> famously uh voiced the main villain in the in the movie and it was his last role he he died like mere days after doing the recording um and so yeah so the you know director and star of citizen kane his final film role was as unicron the giant um robot planet god that consumes other planets and um is the you know main antagonist of transformers the movie from 1986 Okay. So Arye, Arye, just to provide one more bit of context here, is this sort of like, this is like your exit from Blogging Heads, or should we picture you? Are you like the action hero and the explosions are going off in the background <laughs> and you're just kind of striding in slow motion? I don't care. I'm going out. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this will be the last episode of Culture Determined to appear on Blogging Heads, but it is maybe more of like a senioritis kind of thing of like, well, you know, Bob can't get that mad at me. I'm already heading out. So, you know, I could do this very silly topic. And um, and it's also, you know, usually on these shows, there's a couple areas in, you know, politics and culture where maybe I know more than the guest or more than the average American or something. But like areas where I feel like I do actually have some expertise, like very, there's, you know, very few, and maybe the only one is Transformers the movie in 1986 <laughs> animated um, motion major motion picture, and so yeah, so I so you, so thank you again for coming on and talking about this. And so one way into this is actually um, an obituary uh, came 
across the wires a couple days ago, and it was for a man named Henry Ornstein, and he died, I think he was 98. Um, and and the, I got on the New York Times app, I got an alert for this, you know, which they usually, they, you know, that's usually a major news story if there's an alert, especially for a obituary. And so, you know, Henry Ornstein, not a famous person, um, but the little icon that came up with Henry Ornstein on the New York Times app alert was a picture of the Optimus Prime action figure from 1984 from Transformers, the original one. And so this man, Henry Ornstein, had a fascinating life. And the link to his New York Times obituary um, is below, or yeah, will be below. And so he died at age 98. The cause was COVID-19. Um, and Henry Ornstein was a Holocaust survivor. Um, and he immigrated to the United States after World War II and started a small toy company and had sort of, you know, toys like in the 50s and 60s, things like Susie Homemaker and Johnny Seven One Man Army Toy Gun and, and other things like that. And then eventually he um, sort of became sort of like a freelancer or something. And then in the early 80s, he was at this event Toy Fair that is like the industry convention for the toy industry. And he saw these uh, little Japanese toys that were a car or a plane that turned into a robot. And he thought, wow, this is really something. And he's, and he brokered the deal between the Japanese manufacturer of these action figures. There's actually a couple different companies that made these and Hasbro who bought the, uh, you know, bought the worldwide rights, except for Japan. Uh, for these toys and um, took them all, changed them all around and turned them into Transformers. So this guy <laughs> played a key role in the creation of Transformers. And then, yeah, he also actually invented the um, the tiny camera that if you watch poker, like, you know, no limit poker, Texas Hold'em on TV. Oh, really? The, the one that's like under the felt? Yes. The thing that the like camera that's built into the felt of the table, that was like his, his late in life thing was he he invented that so a very interesting person and um so rest in peace mr ornstein but um this story sort of illustrates a key aspect of transformers which is it was a product first it was a toy you know made out of plastic and metal and it was in the tv show and the comic book and the movie and everything else was always in service of selling toys to, to children and so it wasn't like um, it was it was somewhere. Be so the whole thing was somewhere between a commercial and, you know, a, a like creative, purely creative work. And in that limbo, like and, and the pressures of capitalism caused various like instigated various storytelling choices that had like strange ramifications for, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of American children in. 1980s um so so hasbro took over you know bought the rights to like the molds and stuff for all these various toys and they handed it off to a um a, a writer at marvel comics to come up with sort of like the backstory and the names for all these toys and this guy i think his name was bud budiansky he was sort of like a second tier writer at marvel in the early 80s and there's a um I'm drawing most of this from a. Have you seen the Netflix series, um, The Toys That Made Us? No, no, I've been meaning to, but I haven't seen it. It's pretty good, and the, so they take a different toy line for each like half hour, forty five minute episode, and 
give the whole history of the toy line. So, you know, they do the first season like Star Wars and Barbie and G.I. Joe. And then second season, there's a Transformers episode gives a lot of this backstory. Anyway, they um, so this one guy like wrote like the equivalent of like a story Bible for a TV series and fleshed out all these characters and decided like which ones were the good guys, the Autobots, which ones were the bad guys, the Decepticons, and gave them a, you know, gave them the sort of personality that came from the Marvel comics of the 1960s of like, you know, some of these characters. So they, for these characters that were robots from an alien world um, who, you know, turn into like dump trucks and <laughs> airplanes, he gave them like, fair, like co more complex characterization than you would strictly need if you just cared about selling these little pieces of plastic. And so, you know, there were 25 or so characters originally, and it kept on multiplying as they made more toys. And so the show, you know, was the anime series, came out 1984, the toys came out. It was a super success and, you know, was the most popular toy that year. And so immediately after that first season of the cartoon came out, they decided, well, let's make a movie out of this and, and really cash in. You know, um, and so they started making the movie before they started the second season of the TV show. And that's why there's a lot of um, missing characters uh, that are introduced in the second season of the TV show that don't appear in the movie. It's a little, a little strange because you know, it takes a long time to make a movie. Um, now, wait a minute. Now, is the chronology of the content of the movie, though, after the second season, even though they started making yes. it? OK, that's what I thought. OK, right. So they introduced all these sort of secondary characters. Um, like the aerial bots. And so we're getting into the weeds now already. Um, and other characters that, um, you know, they, they were manufacturing toys for. And so they introduced them in the second season, but they weren't created the yet. And so they were sort of like, <laughs> right. So the Dinobots were there from the, from the beginning. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Dinobots. And I'm actually wearing my, wearing my Dinobot shirt right now. If people can see, um, oh, wow. so there's a little, <laughs> uh, Easter egg for people viewing. And I, I feel a little bit like Mickey Cass because I had to do some, props here i have a little here's a little megatron action figure uh that who's the main villain of the first two seasons of the show and turns into a gun that's the kind of thing you couldn't do today and um yeah so okay so they they write so there's, there's sort of like two tracks where they're writing the second season of the show writing writing this movie hiring like a higher class of animator to do the movie and then also in his creation, they decided to do a lot of, they made a lot of strange creative choices. So one was the, the, uh, <laughs> the show was, was set sort of contemporaneously in the mid-1980s. They decided we're going to vault ahead uh, into the future, into all the way into the year 2005. So that's one of the first lines of dialogue in the movie is, it is the year 2005. And, you know, a futuristic world um, has been presented to us with, a, with hovercraft and all sorts of, you know, interesting things like that. and. So all the, you know, the classic thing with the Transformers was, you know, Optimus Prime looked like a truck and, you know, it looked like a race car or something. And so suddenly all, all the new characters they introduce have these futuristic alt modes. So it's a little, a little bit different. And then um, they, let's see. So they um, sort of, okay, so, the you know, the key hero of Transformers, Sky Optimus Prime, and, and strangely, you know, the, they made it, Michael Bay rebooted the series in live action CGI movies, and they became, you know, super successful, maybe only rivaling Marvel as a franchise over the past 15 years. So probably more people have heard of Optimus Prime, but he's sort of like the Captain America of the show. He's, 
he's the he's the main hero. He's the great guy. You know, he always makes the wise decision. They have this great voice actor named Peter Cullen doing the voice of him. He sort of sounded like, you know, like a little bit of like a Western hero who, you know, would wear the white hat and always yeah. makes the right decision. So he is more or less Captain America. And in the um and in, in the movie, uh, shockingly, and spoiler alert, um, they kill him off. And it's... About 25 minutes <laughs> into the show. <laughs> or maybe even sooner than that. Like, the, the movie starts, there's this prologue where you see Unicron, the Horse and Wells villain, eating a planet. And then, which is very traumatic, if you think about a small child seeing this, like, you see all these little, like, non-transformer robots, like, dying. And the animation in that, the animation in that sequence is several orders of magnitude greater than what you're accustomed to in the show. So yeah. already, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, vivid animation. So you see that, and then and then it's basically a big action sequence. And at the end of the action sequence, uh, Megatron, the main villain of the, of the series, uh, faces off against Optimus Prime, the main hero, and Megatron kills Optimus Prime. So it would be sort of like if there had never been a Captain America movie and they went straight to making an Avengers movie, and then they killed Captain America in the first 20 minutes. Um, and so that would, you know, that, that's a bizarre creative choice of taking the most beloved character that all the little boys and girls, probably mostly boys, but, um, you know, like, saw as their personal hero and, and having him die. And, it, like, it's very, it, so he's a robot, but it's very clear that he dies and, um, and he turns to, you know, he turns to, like, Grey, and the life force has vanished from him. Um, and, and that's that. So the reason they did this was that it was all based around introducing new toys. So, you know, the kids already, the kids have all already bought their Optimus Prime action figure. And I guess they didn't quite, you know, today they'll be like, you know, there's like 20 versions of Captain America action figure you can get wearing different costumes and stuff. But I guess that idea wasn't really there yet. But they're like, the kids already own all the, these toys. Let's clear them out. We'll kill off all these characters and then introduce a bunch of new toys. And kids love toys. They'll buy the new toys. And, you know, it's a win-win for all involved. And so it was this, like, very crass economic commercial decision to um, wipe, basically wipe out almost all the characters from the original run, introduce an entire new set of characters, which were based on a new set of toys. So, you know, the kids would ask for the new toys for Christmas. And the whole thing would keep on rolling. And so the, the movie where, like, a kid... Uh, so I was, a, I was a little too young. I didn't actually see it in theaters. It came out in 86. Um, but someone who was born in, like, 79 or something and was really into Transformers and then, like, okay, I, I want to go see a movie with all my favorite Transformers characters. Almost all those characters are gone after 20 minutes. And this entirely new set of characters, most of them voiced by a strange assortment of 80s celebrities, um, including Judd Nelson, Leonard Nimoy, um, Scatman Carruthers, uh, Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries. It's a, it's a bizarre, uh, Eric Idle uh, from Monty yes. Python. It's a truly bizarre cast and Orson Welles. And um, I, 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 one thing I did want to note that amused me rewatching it. Eric Idle is the top build actor in the credits. <laughs> Right. And he's in it. He's in it for like five or 10 minutes, maybe. And he doesn't even show up until like the third act. It's very strange. And so, okay, so then after they've they've killed off, shockingly, um, all the, you know, all our heroes, and then they kill off a lot of the villains also. And whether Megatron 
is truly killed off or is, you know, revivified in this transformed, no pun intended, (laughs) vessel is an interesting debate within Transformers fandom. Um, But yeah, so then it's just like an entirely new plot, entirely new characters. It's the plot is sort of a vague ripoff of Star Wars. Like there's a young, untested. Yeah, this and Star Wars, of course, like took the hero's journey um, and, you know, multiple multiple strands from other mythologies but like there's a a young guy the older guy dies sort of like uh, there's a mystical force there's an evil planet uh there's even like a scene with lightsabers and stuff you know outer space things grimlock is sort of like chewbacca there's a there's a lot of parallels um parallels there but then like a bunch of wacky stuff happens and they go to different planets they meet strange characters and in the end good triumphs over evil but it's just a it was like I, I had it on VHS and it's probably the movie I've seen the most in my life. You know, I have to have seen it like 500 or a thousand times because I would just watch it over and over again as a child it has a strangely compelling aspect for children. And then I have rewatched it as an adult, including a couple of weeks ago when we proposed doing this. And I think it mostly does hold up. If you sort of accept that it's, you know, a, a weird eighties movie, it has this commercial imperative. It also bizarrely has, like a full orchestral score that's entirely um, uh, digital, like like 80s synth music that's actually pretty good. And also a lot of like 80s hairband rock songs oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. built that. into yeah. it. So it's all, so there's just all these, str- like the strange mixture. Like why did, the, you know, it's not like little kid songs. They're sort of like angsty teenager songs or something that, th- that they bring in. And so this, <laughs> the soundtrack is like kind of decent for a, you know, a children's movie from the mid eighties. Okay, I, I've talked way too much. What did what did you think? So, did you maybe you had seen this as a, as a kid, or you hadn't seen this at least in in decades? What did what did you think watching this strange cultural? So product? I I did actually see it in the theater. Uh, okay, what do you remember kid. about that? Um, I remember. Um, I was at an age where I was right at that age where. I was actually too old to really be into something like Transformers or mm-hmm. G.I. Joe at the time. And so I kind of hid uh, that fandom uh, <laughs> from fa- friends. And of course, they were all doing the same thing. Um, so um, I I was very conflicted on it because uh, when I saw it in the theater, I um, I really loved the, the jump in animation quality. and there were a couple of the new characters that I thought were really intriguing and fantastic. Um, uh, but I, I was thrown off by the, the, the crass um, decision to focus so heavily on the new characters. And funnily enough that that remains my primary critique of the film today. I, I wish um they had given a writer the mandate of, hey, it is very important to us to usher in this new generation of toys. And you could do that, but save the heroic death of Optimus Prime for the third act where it belongs. And so it it, it feels like the, the way I experienced the movie is, oh, wait a minute, this is not, not the movie that it should be. So I have to completely set aside what I want it to be and accept that it's this new, it really 
it's more of the first episode in a new generation of characters than it is a conclusion to the original ones. And I think that that's just a, a, a ridiculous and unnecessary, you know, unforced error from a creative point of view. But all of the merits that you mentioned um, are, are definitely true. The, uh, the energy of the performances from this pretty stellar cast still holds up very well. Um, I was particularly amused by Eric Idle's character's um, sort of riff on television culture. He's, yeah, so he's constantly spinning. He, only spe he speaks like in slogans from commercials and um, and like jingles or like, yeah, TV show slogans or something. It's a strange like uh, society that somehow has received Earth. You didn't yeah. know Earth's culture. And they're they're the junkions are called they like live on a planet made of junk and they can sort of like disassemble and reassemble themselves from trash and then yeah. like they've absorbed America's trash culture and speak in this um like yeah they only they only can say like marketing slogans or, or something yeah it's it's, it's strange only like, available um, for ninety days you know stuff like that yeah and he's and, also, he's also talking very fast he has a British accent and, and they modulate a lot of these voices to make them sound quasi robotic so it's yeah, hard to yeah. figure out even what he's saying. Um, but the, which the funny thing to me, choice. yeah. But the funny thing to me is, is like it starts off as gibberish, but then as you catch on to what the premise or the concept is, eventually it becomes like an intelligible language, and you can actually get meaning out of what he's saying. And I, I thought that was that was that was a whole lot of fun. Um, contrasting uh, adolescent Milton and. Older Milton here. Um, <laughs> one one big difference was um, when I was a kid, there were a lot of the individual Transformers that I just did not like um, because I'm like a sci-fi fan and all the robot stuff to me is so cool. But then like, why are you going to turn into like uh, an 18 wheeler? Why are you going to turn into a toaster? <laughs> like well, they're, ro they're robots in disguise. Yes. So, okay. Yes. 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 They are yeah, in so disguise. The, the original conceit of the show was that there are these aliens from another planet who are robots <laughs> who can turn into sort of, you know, quasi alien vehicles and hovercrafts and stuff like that. They land yeah. on Earth. They're during the time of the dinosaurs. They're in a like volcano dormant for sixty five million years. There's a volcanic eruption. They're awoken. They send out a little scanner. To identify, you know, because they're used to disguising themselves, strangely, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but identify, like, what's going on this planet, and they scan, like, yeah, a, you know, a big rig, or an airplane, or construction equipment, or something like that, and so, yeah. like, oh, we can just, they remake themselves so they can disguise themselves as these things, and sort of drive around undetected. It doesn't really make a ton of sense, it, you know, it's, again, it's it's built from the fact that there were these pre-existing physical objects that a couple Japanese toy manufacturers had put together of like a, you know, a tape player that turned into a robot. Yeah. You yeah. have like a backstory. And so they're like, how can we fit all this weird, <laughs> weird stuff together? And that's, and that's what they came up with. So one character that I had a very odd critique of um, was Megatron and uh, Megatron. Uh, oh, to me, up my, my mi miniature. Yeah. Megatron figure. So he he's he's the, the main leader of the villains. He turned into yeah. a, a gun in the original and 
they can't even make a, a replica. So this is like a, so I can't remember <laughs> where I got this, but you, you can't make a, to, a realistic toy gun anymore. And so even any version that they make that kind of looks like it, they have to put like a little like orange thing at the tip so that, they, you know, it's not, a child is not mistaken by the cops as, as yeah. you know, holding a gun or something. And if I remember correctly, at one point they had kind of a like advanced version of the toy that really, really did look like a gun. Like it was oh, shiny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the it, again, it was it was taken from these Japanese molds, and it looked it, it looked exactly like this specific brand of gun or you know make and model of gun that's called like a Walt Walther P thirty eight or something. It's it's sort of like a gun that came from Germany, like circa two, like World War two, um, and, and it was the right, appropriate size for a gun. Also, so you could imagine that this might cause some some problems, you know, in America, our gun toting society, maybe in. Japan, they didn't quite think that anyone would actually have a gun, so they're like, it's just, it's just fine to do it. Um, so yeah, and so Megatron, he's basically just like pure evil. He wants to extract. Originally, they want to extract like the resources and the energy. Once so they turn into energon, their their fuel source from Earth, and then it, it, he's just sort of like a more or less standard conquer the universe kind of. Yeah, villain. he's not particularly complex. He's voiced by Frank Welker, who was one of the most accomplished. Um, voice you know voice artists of all time and does a lot of um he's mainly known for animal um noises and so he did like i don't know if he's still on the simpsons but he did like santa's little helper and snowball oh, wow. and the simpsons and is just known for making very um very realistic animal noises um and he's and the second most famous thing he's is uh, dr claw from inspector gadget um who's essentially the same voice as oh wow okay, as sound okay. wave uh, another one of the robots except they modulate his voice a little bit but um yeah so so he so he's he's like very well known within you know within yeah uh the world of animation so when i um when i had this weird critique about megatron my my, my weird critique was is that when he transforms into his weapon one of the other decepticons needs to shoot him right and i thought like what like what kind of dangerous villain are you if you need the other guy to shoot you Mm-hmm. So I loved his, I, I liked, uh, you called him revivified form in Transformers, the movie where he becomes this Galvatron. And I thought Galvatron was a better design as a kid because he, he, you know, he could stand alone as like a tripod and shoot. Yeah, he's, he's sort of a cannon or like a tank, somewhere between a, a tank and a cannon that shoots like lasers and stuff. And so here, so I've transformed Megatron while you were speaking <laughs> and you can see his sort of gun shape, but they added this little orange thing. So even oh, you know, okay. the, the, you know, wouldn't be mistaken as an actual gun. Um, so that's the fun, you know, that that's the core fun of the toys. It's just like, you can <laughs> da, 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 and like you've changed it. And that, that was what captured my imagination as, as a small child. But yeah. So, so now okay, I want to reverse my, reverse myself on that opinion. Like <laughs> as an adult now, Megatron is a much cleaner and cooler design. Galvatron is not as amazing as I thought he was, but he's still a cool derivative version. Yeah. And I loved, of course, that he's voiced by Leonard Nimoy, so I still really do like the character. Yeah, so they had this strange um, sort of characterization of uh, Megatron and his second-in-command Starscream. And Starscream, and I guess there's other, you know, uh, there's other storylines that has this where like the second in command is always scheming against the main guy and trying to take over and, and so forth. And so 
so yeah, Megatron is reliant. When he turns into a gun, he's reliant on someone else to shoot him, and that's usually Starscream. But then, you know, so it's like, why does why does Megatron keep Starscream around when Starscream is always trying to take over? That's, you know, that never makes a ton of sense. And there, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of, like, fan fiction that explores, like, a different possible relationship between these two characters. And so after, so Megatron is, like, close to death. Uh, the, the big fight with Optimus, he's left for dead, but he's still, he says, wait, I still function. And, um, and Starscream throws him out into outer space and basically, like, launches a coup to take over. And so Megatron is, like, you know, <laughs> near death, floating through outer space. And who does he encounter? The giant evil planet from the beginning. Um, and that planet has not spoken up until now. And it speaks, and it's Orson Welles. Um, and so what did, you, what, what did you think about that moment as an adult who, especially one who has an interest in Orson Welles' life? Well, I had forgotten just how modulated the effect was of Unicron. Um, when I saw it as a kid, I was aware of who Orson Welles was. Um, so I, I was aware that he was doing the voice. But as an adult going back, I was kind of surprised at how disguised his voice was. Um, I think most people, if they did, if they weren't aware of this fact and they played the audio track, it, it would take a very um, seasoned Wellesian ear to identify that he's the one giving this performance, which is kind of weird because, you know, they've got him very highly billed in the, in the credits there. Um, so I thought that that was um, a surprise. Yeah. Um, I suppose. So one yeah. possible explanation is that he was, I mean, he was literally near death and that he was so weak that he couldn't like project the, the famous like deep voice. And so they had to like, in order to like ramp ramp up the voice and make it sound scary, they had to like modulate it that much and distort it. So you can't really tell it's him. And then it's like, well, why did they bring him on to begin with? I have no idea exactly why, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just weird. It's, it's bizarre. Um, and that this was his last screen role. I mean, you know, as, as time progressed, he was doing less high end products and he was like a spokesman for a wine or something like that. But um, but yeah, it's, on the it's, song, <laughs> we'll serve no wine before it's time. Yes. Yeah, and, it's, and it's just very strange. I should note, otherwise the Wellesians are going to kick me. There is some dispute uh, as to what deserves the note, uh, the name of Wells's last performance. There was also at the time um, a Henry Jaglum film uh, in which he plays a small role, and I think it was filmed obviously before uh, Transformers, but released after Transformers. So depending on how you score oh, okay. it, you know, some, some people will say uh, that that was his last on-screen performance. But, uh, but yeah, for all practical purposes, it was his last major uh, role right. in the movies. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think he did die like within days of finishing the recording and there was even so, a lot of my knowledge, people may be shocked by how knowledgeable I am about this nonsense. A lot of it comes from like being into Usenet around 1996 and which was like a, a message board system sort of before the web came around. And so, you know, there were that was an era of like fan theorizing about things where there was no like central repository and it was still very like niche. No one cared about it. So there was always this fan theory that Wells had actually died without finishing his his 
laying down his voice track and they and Leonard Nimoy came in and like did the last few lines he didn't record and they like modulated it down and people would like take certain clips of Unicron speaking and like mess with the levels or something and say that this you know you could tell that this was actually Nimoy saying it I don't think that that ever so that was like an early sort of you know fan conspiracy theory kind of yeah like, I, I think I, I think it was not true um, I yeah I, I highly doubt it but just because from in that period especially when doing commercials um, he was well known for you're getting me for X amount of time I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna read the copy when the clock hits X I'm out. And so I don't think he would have scheduled more than one day for this particular thing. <laughs> that makes sense. And he did, he doesn't really, I mean, how many lines does he have? It's like 20 or 25 or something because. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's possible that he just finishes within a couple hours. Okay. So, so Megatron, I'm holding him up now. He's floating along in outer space. He's almost dead. And then he encounters Unicron and Unicron is like, well, I can like give you a new body and you'll be my servant. And Megatron's like, I serve no master. And Unicron shoots out some sort of like mental, you know, death ray or something. And, 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 yeah, but, and Megatron's like, fine, fine, I'll do it, I'll do it. And so, um, he's transformed. And this was maybe the scene as a child I was most fascinated by. It's really cool, even still. It's like the, the, the Megatron and the other dying Decepticons are like transmogrified into these entirely new characters who also have like futuristic, you know, a styling to them. And so, Megatron turns into Galvatron. He's he's fully healed. He's he now is like purple. He had um voiced by Leonard Nimoy and you know turns into this sort of tank gun thing. And then, you know, he zooms off and then he c- comes back to the coronation ceremony that Starscream is having um to as Starscream you know self-appointed the new um leader of the Decepticons and um and he kills Starscream. Um and so there was all, there was a fan debate about whether it was sort of like, you know, some sort of like mind body problem or something like was Gal- was Megatron's essence still in there? And so because Megatron had put up with Starscream shenanigans for so many years and like kept him around for some reason. And then as soon as Galvatron comes on the scene, he immediately like <laughs> nails Starscream with the laser beam and Starscream like turns the dust, like, dis- like turns the stone, disintegrates and like blows away and so the, the line is something like starscream says uh megatron is that you and um and and galvatron says something like um what like i'll show you or something or like what do you think about this and then transforms blows them away so it's like did you know it, maybe this wasn't maybe this essence like this is a new creation or something this is not megatron because why would megatron kill his you know this guy who he had put up with for Millennia. So that's that's all that was all. And so there was, you know, Megatron partisans back in the day who were like, you know, Megatron would never do something like this to poor Starscream. This is obviously like an entirely new creature. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was another strange aspect is they didn't they didn't kill. They killed off Optimus Prime, but they turned they turned Megatron, the main villain, into this like kind of new character, new voice, new look, still a sort of a gun type thing. and then. And then sort of like the main plot of the rest of the movie comes out, which is basically like they're flying around. They're trying to get back to Cybertron. They want to stop the evil Unicron from eating Cybertron. And they there's just like various obstacles in their path. And then eventually they come and more or less do it. Um, so what, what did you think of? So after 
you know, the, sort of that, like, after the first 25 minutes, getting rid of all the old characters, bringing in the new ones so we can sell new toys to the children. What did you think of, like, that, <laughs> like, main chunk of the movie that where most of the actual action happens? So, um, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot once I got past that middle block. And it just so happens that to sort of um, the archetype of the Joseph Campbellian hero's journey with um, with the chosen one character realizing his uh, special nature and uh, here we go with the pun, transforming into a higher being. Um, it just so happens that that storytelling groove is like perfectly fit to my brain. And I just <laughs> love that anytime that that moment comes around um like um have you ever watched the kung fu film the last dragon uh where the protagonist achieves achieves the glow um so it's that that classic moment where the uh you know divinely empowered hero sort of comes into full uh, uh possession of their powers same kind of thing happened multiple times to Luke Skywalker, uh, Neo in the Matrix. And then we have that moment here with this new character who um, right. starts out with a pretty lame name. Hobrod is his trans- official name. He's sort of yeah, he's and the untested then, youth character. And yeah. when Megatron and Optimus are fighting, he tries to jump in and fight off Megatron and Megatron overpowers him and sort of takes him hostage. So he, he is in some small way like responsible for Optimus' death. Um, so he feels guilty about that, but they sort of like after it's weird because like all their friends or their teammates or whatever, like, you know, 75% of them are, are just like blown away and dead. And then they're just like off on this sort of fun adventure. Don't really, you know, spend a lot of time mourning. Yeah, <laughs> Re- really they're you know, and, and so it's like, there's a sort of Optimus, the second in command, Ultra Magnus was voiced by Robert Stack, um, you know, takes over, but like he is, he says, I'm just a soldier at one point. He's not a natural leader. And then it, it's, so there's and then the, the the hero's journey sort of thing is shoehorned in with um with hot rod and so they there's another so there's this whole like religious spirit or spiritual or something sort of aspect to the story that was entirely it wasn't in the show at all they introduced it this and so it's, it's sort of it's like a knockoff of the force except there's this object called the matrix the Matrix, Autobot Matrix of Leadership, when Optimus is dying, he takes it out of his chest. It's like this glowing sort of orb with handles, and he hands it to Ultra Magnus, or actually he sort of like drops it. It's very, it, Optimus's death scene is very dramatic and sad. And, you know, and so Hot Rod like grabs it, hands it to Ultra Magnus, and then Ultra Magnus takes it, but he, he at a key moment, he can't open it. And, you know, they, it's the prophecy says it will light our darkest hour, you know, at, at some point. And then, yeah, so then the the actual finale of the movie, uh, <laughs> Hot Rod does it. He realizes, oh, there's these little finger holes in the handles. Put your put your hand in there, and you can pull it apart, and it causes some magical blue, glowing, you know, substance or or force or something to shoot out, and that's what ultimately destroys um, <laughs> Unicron, the Orson Welles voice giant planet devouring robot god. Um, it's sort of the accumulated wisdom or power or something of all generations of good good robots come together and and then he is um transformed literally once again into like a different character, uh Rodimus Prime, because now he's like he's he's fulfilled 
lead the leadership entirely and is ready to be like the true leader that he was always meant to be. So, so that's yeah, that name needed a, another redraft there. That's, that's a, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So all the, all the, all the original names were come up with by like the Marvel comics guys. So, you know, Optimus Prime, Megatron and all this other stuff. And then I guess somehow they thought, well, the leader of the Autobots is always called Prime. And so <laughs> Hot Rod became Rodimus Prime and, you know, Rodimus, I, I, I don't quite know. It, it's a, tr- a strange word and I guess fake Greek or something. <laughs> and you also had Megatron, Unicron, um, all these sort of pseudo something or other <laughs> names that they came up with. And then the movie ends. So, you know, Unicron is portrayed as this like unstoppable you know, galactic power force. But once they open the um, the Matrix, he sort of just like blows up and actually has a pretty dramatic death scene or he sort of like tears off one of his own legs and is like, you know, it's like his insides are going insane or something. He tears himself apart and then blows up. And then like it, the movie's wrapped up within like 90 seconds of that. They sort of all the Decepticons are sort of shunted to the side and it um and all, all the Autobots are together and they say till all are one, uh, like one with the Matrix or something. And that's sort of the end. And then the the following it set it up for the third season of the cartoon, which was set in 2005 and had de- dealt with all, entirely all these new characters. That was the last season. The show it was canceled after that. The movie itself was not a success, uh, which is strange because the, the show was popular and the toys were bestsellers. But maybe they just it came a year too late or something. It did not get good reviews. It was too grown up. And also, did you notice that one of the characters says ship? Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. At one point, so there's, it's rated PG. There's cur- At least I think it is. Or, or it would be rated PG today. It, there's cursing in it. There's death, dismemberment, um, you know, transmogrification. There's a lot of weird stuff in here for something that is essentially aimed at like six-year-olds. Um, and And then it ends on this very strange image of the dead Unicron's head, like orbiting Cybertron, the home planet of the Transformers, like a satellite moon or something. And then it freeze frames on that. And that's, that's the end. It, it almost seems like that maybe they ran out of, maybe they planned an extra five minutes or something and ran out of money to, to do the animation <laughs> or something. It ends, it ends very abruptly. It's, it's fairly compact. It really does have sort of a proposed propulsive motion to it. Like there's a couple slower parts, but like something is almost always happening. A, a ship is, taking off or landing or crash landing or, mm-hmm. or exploding or something. So, and it's almost a musical because all of these action sequences are either with the heavy metal soundtrack or the 80 cent soundtrack you were referring to earlier. Yeah. It's yeah. It's I, I don't think a cartoon that, well, I mean, 2d animation is basically dead in, in movies today, but yeah, I don't think sort of like the full score would be a part of it. And And the way the songs come in are like, very dramatic. And so there's two songs that this 80s hair metal rocker named Stan Bush wrote for the movie. One is Dare and one is The Touch. And then The Touch had a second life because in the movie Boogie Nights, um, Mark Wahlberg's character sings it when he tries to have a solo recording career. And I don't know exactly why they picked that. I guess it was, you know, like the rights to have it in in Boogie Nights were very cheap or something because no one cared about it at that point. Um, and so it had this sort of strange, ironic second life as like a very a, a, a totally absurd 80s song sung very badly by Mark Wahlberg at Boogie Nights. But like it actually is a pretty good sort of anthemic 80s, like, let's get the job done. You can do it. Pump it up. Mm-hmm. 
you know, a song. Um, yeah, it's all, I don't know. It's, it's such a strange, it's such a strange cultural object. And, I, and I, just looking at it as an adult, it's like they have these very mercenary objectives. And so, you, you know, is this, is this like a commercial? Is it like, what is it exactly? It's somewhere in between. And the, the fact that the toy company said, okay, clear out all the old dreck that, you know, the kids don't want, you know, we want kids to buy new stuff. And that necessitated killing off these beloved characters and introducing entirely new ones. And but yet it like it isn't just a commercial like they, they it has like these weird other compelling aspects to it of that, like captured, <laughs> captured the imagination of of many, of many children um, back in the day. I, I do wonder if, you know, if you showed this to a kid today, what their interest level would be. Um, I don't know. There's certainly like there's. there's stuff happening on screen constantly so maybe that they would that that sort of remains compelling but um yeah I don't, I don't exactly know beyond that i i agree with you in the sense that it's more than a commercial because um th that is one of the routine uh lines against the transformers mythology as a whole it's dismissed as primarily a toy line and you know financially speaking that's probably true but um you know once you give folks an opportunity to play with storytelling within those parameters, um, there's always the potential for something interesting and something that can connect with people. Um, I, I, I don't think that, um, I mean, sure, there's a certain amount of cynicism you can bring to it, but these stories definitely connected with a with a generation of kids and there's there's all kinds of other examples um yeah, this is not a, a direct one-to-one -one comparison and i've made this exact point on culturally determined before but that was so long ago i'll bring it up again <laughs> my favorite anecdote from from this type of thing is that um the concept of kryptonite uh in the mythology of superman was not a creative driven decision it literally was handed down from radio management uh, when Superman was a radio uh, ongoing radio uh, broadcast, mm -hmm. and the the actor who played Superman needed a vacation, and they needed a <laughs> they needed they needed some story reason to keep him out of the show for a week or two, uh -huh. and and the writers invented Kryptonite out of that, and you pointed out that. Kryptonite is not only an integral part of Superman, it, it has gone on to become synonymous with, you know, um, you know, Achilles type of uh, yeah, moment the, the, the in our culture. Can, yeah, the thing that can, you know, disable the seemingly all powerful or mortal, uh, you know, person is, is their kryptonite. Um, so whatever provides the opportunity to tell an interesting story may have very cynical uh motives behind it but there's always opportunity to spend some gold with it yeah and then you know i guess it's a cliche that like constraint like art grows out of constraints and if you know they were <clears throat> the bosses were like you have to do xyz and you know creative people are able to you know use that as i don't know a launching pad or a you know a way to push up against things and then go back um, so that's, I mean, that's definitely what happened here, I think. And I don't know, it's, um, what else do I want to say about this? I've talked, I've talked so much and I, and I wonder if anyone who 
who has that <laughs> who did not you know wasn't born between like 1978 and uh and 1985 cares about this at all um but let me see if there's anything else i want to say i mean i you unfortunately uh it's not available on streaming for free but it's on amazon if anyone has you know is <laughs> interested in watching this af- after listening to it um and i i watched the uh, i actually watched the blu-ray and it looks they did a, a great you know it's 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 cell animation which you don't see that much anymore and it's not like at the level of you know studio ghibli or something but it's pretty good and um and there's some very impressive scenes you know when remember that these were (laughs) all being drawn by hand it's it is pretty impressive because we're so used to cgi animation at this point um and the music is is ridiculously fun um the the composer for the synthesizer music is the same guy who did did the music for rocky four yes and I don't know if you're aware of this, but is his name, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And Sylvester Stallone just released a director's cut of Rocky four, which at the point you asked me to watch transformers, I had not seen yet. And I was so pumped up by the music in transformers. I immediately turned on Rocky four. So I had a a nice mid eighties film festival that night. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Yeah. So, so Rocky four contains, uh, in my opinion, the, the best, training sequence you know in, oh yeah in, in yeah the 1980s like oeuvre of training sequences and it's scored by this vince nicola guy who's only like playing on the synthesizer and it's, it's such a funny uh, i'll track the link down and include it on youtube it, i've watched it multiple times it's such a funny scene because rocky is going back up against drago is that that's his name um yeah. soviet like super you know super soviet guy and they contrast it that like rocky so like rocky is like dragging like logs or like pushing like a giant barrel or something or like you know chopping down trees he's like of the earth and organic and like you know he doesn't have anything except like his his mitts and then the the soviet boxer is like super high tech and there's all these like computers and blinking monitors and stuff that he's like you know the high the, the high tech of the soviet union has like reached its apogee in training yeah. this guy. Whereas like yeah. the American is just like, oh, like all I could do is like throw a giant boulder or something. That's the only way I can get in shape. And it's just like, it's such a strange, you know, when you, looking back on what actually was going on in America, the Soviet Union at the time. Was yeah, yeah. Thing that they thought, oh, this like we're, we, you know, we're the salt of the earth and the Soviets have this overwhelming technological superiority. But like <laughs> the American heart was well, went out in the end. Yes, yeah, so that's that's a great scene. And I don't think that this guy, Vince Nicole, has really done anything else besides. Oh, wow. Those are basically his two, two major credits. I, I, he's support maybe just commercials or something. But um, yeah. So I, I have a potentially obscure question for you. Now, you mentioned the comics. Were you reading the Transformer comics during this time period that the movie came out? I, I sort of was. I mean, not. I was too young. I, I would have been only three when the movie came out. It was more like a couple of years later. I was reading them, but but I was more just like looking at the foot, like the drawings. Like I don't think I even really read um, them, but I, I did get them. And so Marvel put them out, and um, and Marvel had some sort of co-producing credit on this movie, and their logo is <laughs> from the '80s is in it. Maybe this is one of the earliest. I, I mean, they must have been involved in like the you know. The, the couple other the handful of other uh motion, motion pictures that came out in the in the 70s for marvel characters but um yeah so it's um it was never super popular and uh it continued to the, the animated series ended the toys came out for a couple of years after that 
it continued to like introduce you know the new characters from the new toys and basically just like went off in in weird directions because no one at marvel seemed to be paying attention to it so i'm going to give you a homework assignment here to see if you can confirm I've, i've got a pretty hazy but i'm pretty sure on this memory um contemporaneous with the release of the movie the storyline in the comics also involved the death of Optimus Prime, mm-hmm. but like death in air quotes. Um, and I don't know if that was strategically planned or just uh, fortuitous, uh, but in the comics, if I remember correctly, he goes into like a coma and the supporting characters around him are like children, like, but precocious children. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the kids saves Optimus Prime's soul on a floppy disk. <laughs> uh-huh. And, that that's a, and, that, and that's how that's how they bring him back in the comics. So look that up. I'm sure you can track that down somewhere. Yeah. And so yeah. In, in the show they eventually did bring him back. Um because I think, you know, I guess with you know within the world of comic books and so forth, no one is really ever dead forever. But um I think because of the backlash of killing off the beloved character like late in the third season they they brought him back and so at the very end he's like there but they they didn't bring back all the other characters who they killed off um it was, it was just Optimus. <laughs> although at some point there's an episode where star screams like soul is sort of floating around and like inhabits like a like regular robot or something who's not a transformer um so they did play around with with some of this stuff but yeah they i think they sort of realized that they made ultimately made a storytelling mistake by killing off the most <laughs> beloved, you know, superheroic character uh, in the show, and and yeah. I I I did also want to mention you or early on you mentioned and a few times throughout this you've mentioned uh, uh, a doubt as to how how resonant it might still be. Um, I will have to tell you that with your generation in particular and some Generation Xers as well. Um, it still has quite enormous purchase and love. And to a certain degree, it's slightly one of the banes of my everyday existence as a comic book creator, because I'm working on a project about Orson Welles. And without fail, every time I mention that at a comic book convention, and I do mean without fail, (laughs) the first thing that comes out of the person's mouth is, oh, Unicron. <laughs> and and uh, as a, as a fan of the entirety of uh, Orson Welles's creative output, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm always demoralized that that's universally the first thing out of uh, my target audience's mouth. But hopefully, <laughs> when this project gets completed, um, I will still uh, win some of them over um, to 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 my story. Yeah. So you're you're working. Well, you can say as much about it as you want. You're working on a project that involves the the life of Orson Welles, um, a graphic novel project. But is 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 this the only thing he did that is within like genre or sci-fi, or did he have I mean, he he did that? He did this strange thing that I watched bizarrely in middle school. I may have mentioned this on the show before. At one point, our middle school teacher, uh, math math teacher, like seventh grade, was telling us about Nostradamus, and other kids knew what it was. So she brought in this <laughs> like semi-documentary that was made mm-hmm. in the 80s about Nostradamus's predictions and, and he did the voiceover for that and it right. had these lines that are like according to this 
the nuclear war annihilating New York City will happen in 1991, like very dramatically. And so that is, I guess, quasi genre. But, you know, for the average like sci-fi fan, what is what is there? You know, what would they have encountered Orson Welles' work anywhere else? I I don't think, especially uh, in the later eras, but in the early era, when he was on radio, he did a couple of different. Well, I guess War genre. of the Worlds, you know, well, is of course genre. Uh, but he also did the voice of the Shadow, which is kind of like a pre-Batman Batman character. Right. Okay, um, uh, you know, rich guy uh, wanders around the city at night, uh, fighting evil forces, wearing a cape. Uh, so very similar to Batman. Um, and then he also had a um a series that um i i'm blanking on the title uh but it's something like the black dossier uh which was basically kind of like his version of um like rod serling night gallery type of thing Mm -hmm. the the story would start out there there'd be this gallery and there would be some sort of object and there might be something creepy about it and there might be a murder mystery uh, told about it. So that, I think there was a light amount of supernatural elements in that as well. But um, Orson didn't do, do too many uh, genre things. He had like a naval thriller that really never saw the light of day called The Deep. That was kind of genre like in tone, mm-hmm. but but not, not much, not much. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, yeah, like you said, the legacy, strangely, of this lives on and I, I sent you an Instagram, like a Photoshop sort of thing that someone that just popped up on my discover page recently of someone taking, um, you know, a, a still of uh, Wells as Falstaff from Chimes at Midnight and recasting the armor as like Unicron's armor. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it continues to inspire. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, 25 or more years later. How many? I know it must be. um 86 to 2021. Is that 20? Please don't do math. math. Don't do math. Um, <laughs> so yeah. And I, and like, yeah, I just, just captured my imagination so much when I was a kid. I remember thinking like, like once 2005 comes, like we'll have hoverboards. Like I, it was before I had seen back to the future, which I guess has a back to the future too, which has a similar sort of that's in 2015, but it just seemed like this was it somehow created this vision of the future that I thought might, might actually happen. And was like excited because there's like a, a little boy character, sort of the audience surrogate, who gets like an exosuit that transforms into sort of like a car type thing. And I was like very excited by that idea that like I too could become a transformer someday. Um, so, if yeah, not it, for if not for Mickey Kaus's, uh influence on the universe, uh, we would be there. <laughs> we would be in that hoverboard <laughs> utopia now. But alas, um, <laughs> we live in the uh, we live in this this timeline. <laughs> yeah, the, the the you know, we're in the bad place. Um okay. Wait, did you did you ask the question that you wanted to talk about um in our pre pre-game conversation, or did you have something else that you wanted to bring up? I actually wanted to ask that post-game. I, I wanted to lean on your talents at uh finding uh individuals in niche emerging uh subcultures. Um there's a there's a war raging in um the comics community right now and uh i need to do some investigating and 
I want to I want to learn some from your skills. But uh, one one tiny last question, I guess. Um, you talked about the voice actor who did Soundwave. Is it uh, the Boombox? Yeah, I, I found the effect in the movie really awesome sounding. Did they do a different version, or did he just always sound that cool in the in the TV show? Yeah, that was that was the original voice. So that's like Frank Welker, who also did Megatron and a bunch of other characters. He, I think if you watch the full credits, you know it lists. You know, there there are multiple voice actors who do multiple characters, and there's some strange ones like Scatman Carruthers, who I mentioned before, who's in you know who's killed in the shot character who's killed in The Shining, and Casey Kasem is was also a voice actor. I think he did he does Crappy Do or something, but he's one he's like Cliff Jumper, one of the minor Autobot characters. Anyway, Frank Welker has like seven or eight different characters that he did the voice for. Yeah, so if you listen to uh, Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget and then listen to Soundwave, it's the exact same voice except they added this, you know, like, kind of reverb effect to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounded very cool in the 80s. And, um, and, you know, when they they did the the Michael Bay rebooted movies, they brought back Peter Cullen, who was the voice of Optimus Prime, but they didn't bring back any of the other original voice actors. So, I mean, the Cullen as Prime is, you know, very, is very iconic. So I think the fans were happy about that. But they, um, they had Hugo Weaving doing Megatron's voice instead of Frank Welker, who is still alive and is still you know, doing voice acting. And so I think that pissed off some of the hardcore fans from the beginning mm. uh, that they disrespected Frank Welker like that. And um, I, I mean, have you seen any of the new, the newer um, Michael Bay versions of these? Um. I skipped out after the first one. I hated the first one just so passionately. I've heard that the Bumblebee one was good. Um, yes. Um, I, I saw the first one and, you know, I, I was okay with the first one. I thought it was decent, but the second one was horrible. And I, I didn't watch any after that, but there's, there's like, I think they've gone to at least six or seven, but they did, they, they done sort of a semi reboot um, with a Bumblebee, a sort of quasi standalone Bumblebee movie that is set in the eighties and is sort of a, like, if the original Transformers movie ripped off Star Wars, this one sort of rips off E.T., um, except Elliot is a girl, Haley Stenfield, I think, and, um, you know, Bumblebee is is E.T. It's, like, it's good. Like, I don't, even if you have no connection to the Transformer characters, I think it's, like, just a solid sort of family entertainment type movie. Um, but I, there are parts that I actually found quite moving. Um, and so I recommend people check that out. And I think they... I don't know. They're, they're they're sort of sick of Michael Bay's influence, and maybe they want to move in a more like humanistic. Uh, that's obviously a strange word to use when talking about uh, robots, but they something that's not just stupid special effects and explosions and like you know half naked women kind of thing. And so Bumblebee, uh, I definitely I would recommend anyone who is okay with <laughs> any sort of genre film check out Bumblebee. It's it's pretty good. And since uh, now you did rewatch it somewhat recently, the the uh, the animated one, yes, I just like a week ago. So since you you sometimes uh, hop on the culture war beat here, I've got a couple of questions for you. The, um, I, I I was struck there was a couple of things that were kind of cringy uh, and didn't age very well, and a, one thing that was kind of a bit progressive for its time, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, the um, the the female robot, even though she's really cliche in terms of design, like literally super girly and pink and she's pink, sexual. Yeah, so, 
and they're, super they're sexualized. Never been a girl, they're never been a female transformer, and it's, it's unclear um, how transformers reproduce. Why, if there would be different genders, that that is unclear because like you can sort of like build a new transformer out of scrap metal and. And then they're fine walking around. So they sort of, they don't seem to need sexual reproduction. So why there would be different genders is somewhat confusing. They introduced the first girl or female transformer in this movie. Her name yeah. is RC. She's pink. She sort of, she has a big head that's a little bit like Princess Leia, like with the, the buns yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So and that, I think that's basically the only, in, in the original iteration, that was the, they never introduced any other. Uh, maybe just a couple of minor characters, but they never stuck around. And they also never made they never never made an RC toy. Um, all oh, the wow. other wow. all the other new characters are toys. But I guess they just thought, well, this is a show for boys, and boys aren't going to want to want going to want to buy a pink toy. I, they threw it in there, you know, for to appeal to the little sisters who are trying to log to the movie or something like that. Um, so not until like 2010 or something did they eventually build an RC toy. Oh wow. But yeah, but, she, uh, so she, she it was sort of kind of crazy, but a, yeah, a, a little proto, you know, feminist thing there. Kind, kind of in the, ever in so the, slightly in the way that Princess Leia grabs the gun, you know, yeah. and, and starts firing herself. Like she can, you know, she's not like damsel in distress. She can sort of take care of herself, and she fires a gun and stuff. But she has like a special connection with the little boy character, sort of like taking mm-hmm. care of him, like in a motherly way. Where where that little yeah. boy's mother is, is is another mystery of the Transformers family. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, and then, progressive? I, don't, I don't exactly know, uh, but it's, it's, yeah, it seems below yeah. Princess Leia in terms of characterization and like autonomy yeah. of a female character. Yeah. And some of the choices in dialogue and, and things that the, that the African-American voice actors uh, portrayed were a little bit cringy. Um, yeah, so, so jazz. <laughs> so, the, OK, so there's like a black transformer seemingly named Jazz voiced by the great Scatman Carruthers. And he sort of speaks in, so in the show. It's like he sort of adapts to America, to like Earth culture and like is interested in like Earth music and stuff. And so he sort of speaks in a sort of like jivey kind of yeah. way that um, is, yeah, sort kind of, of feels more like a late 60s, early 70s sort of cliche slang. And here yeah. it is in the mid to late 80s. It just yeah, it feels it feels kind of retro and, that, it is <laughs> and not in a strange. good way. <laughs> I don't know if there were any other, if any of the other voice actors were black, um, or if the only black voice actor was <laughs> doing the voice of this sort of black coded character. Um, I think there was one other, but I'm 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 drawing a blank. Um, yeah, but I I had another, I remember another cringe moment. But um, there's another there's this the character who's sort of the Autobot version of Soundwave, whose name is Blaster, who's like a boombox. He also has sort of a black, you know, African American vernacular english sort of way of talking um and i don't know if i'm guessing that was a white voice actor who who did him because no one was mm-hmm. cared about those things 35 years ago or was even paying attention to uh you know who who was voicing uh, cartoon characters i guess yeah yeah i yeah. don't if if the does the movie have any politics is maybe something interesting to think about i'm not i'm not exactly sure i mean it's it, good versus evil i did want to mention oh the um the tagline to the uh, to the movie the official tagline of the movie poster is beyond good, beyond evil, beyond your wildest imagination, which is so grandiose and insane. <laughs> like they've transcended traditional morality. Uh, like, you know, your, your mind will be blown. Like possibly a new moral system will, will, will <laughs> you know, roll out of this thing. So it's like Nietzsche in, in some bizarre way. Um, 
Yeah, so but aside from that sort of standard good versus evil thing, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's anything really beyond that. There's there's parts where it seems like the good guys and the bad guys have to team up to fight Unicron, but then it's always like Galvatron or Megatron is always like immediately ready to like betray <laughs> betray Unicron. Sure, yeah, yeah. Try to serve his own ends, and then he gets the brain raise or something. So it's not you couldn't even say it's sort of like a you know like uh, planetary threat. Everyone needs to come together put aside differences in order to like a literal planetary threat, a, a giant planet that eats other planets. Um, but I'm sure there's probably, I'm sure even more hardcore, hardcore fans than, than me have um, mapped out some sort of political angle on it. I mean, it was the Reagan eighties. So that I'm sure um, leads <laughs> into it somehow, but <laughs> I, I, I never, I've never thought deeply about that. It does take place in the future. So. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, we've gone long. It's possible that someone is still listening to this, um, but I'm not quite sure. But anything else you want to mention or, or plug or any projects you're working on that you'd like uh, to mention? Not at the moment. I, I, I would just like to thank you for having me on a few times in Culturally Determined's original home base. And I'm looking forward to following you along in, in your new home and wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you. And yeah, the, the details are, have not quite been ironed out, but possibly by the time this posts, um, it, it will be more obvious where people can continue to <laughs> receive the content. But the place, one place where they definitely can is the Culturally Determined podcast feed. And so if you're only subscribing to the main Blogging Heads feed and want to continue receiving Culturally Determined, you know, a, a few weeks from now, um, you need to subscribe to the Culturally Determined feed in your preferred podcast app. And, you know, like, subscribe, rate, review, leave a positive comment, um, tell your friends, you know, turn into a robot and spread the word that way somehow. Um, okay, so finally, um, thank you, Milton, for coming on and indulging me and being my partner, talking about this thing that I have a, a strange obsession with, um, you know, uh, 35 years or so after it was released to the public. And, um, and yeah, uh, I don't know till all are one. What do you, oh, how should we end this? Um, <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> Transform and roll out. Okay. Thank you. More Milton. than meets the eye. <laughs> yeah. This episode was truly more than meets the eye. Uh, thank you, Milton. Thank you to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time.